Cases, COVID-19 cases, and now deaths, are spiking across America. Cases are up 45%, and deaths up 17% over the past two weeks. Donald Trump rounded out his campaign with super spreader events all over the Midwest, America's current hot zone. Dr. Fauci warned this week that COVID-19 could continue to alter the facts of American life, get this, until at least the end of 2021. This is America Dissected. I'm your host, Dr. Abdul El-Sayed. And what happens today may be the difference maker in that timeline. Friends, I probably don't have to tell you this, but it's election day. There are a lot of reasons why you should vote. It's your stake in democracy. It's your chance to help choose the decision makers who will shape the contours of your life for the next two to four years. It's the bulwark of our political system. But I want to share a story about why the vote is so important to me. As many of you know, my parents left Egypt. My dad left in part because he was an agitator against the military dictatorship there. I didn't really appreciate what democracy and all the rights that come with it, like freedom of speech, freedom of religion, and freedom of assembly, meant until I was back in Egypt one summer when I was a kid. I was about 13, and my grandmother told me that I should remember never to talk about politics with anyone there. I couldn't just say what I wanted about politicians. I was a bit of an iconoclast. I still am. And so the next time we went out to the market, I screamed the choicest Arabic words my cousins had taught me about the president. My grandmother flipped out and pulled me inside. See, it's fine, I told her. Until that night, when plainclothes cops came to the house, my grandfather answered the door, and they asked, where's that boy who said those things about our leader? My grandfather is one of the toughest people I have ever met. He sold vegetables in a fish market most of his life. I'd never seen him afraid until then. Where's your passport, he asked. I went to go get it and passed it to him. He held it up like an amulet. This boy is American. He has freedom of speech, he said. You can't talk to him. I'm really lucky because they left. Had it been one of my cousins who pulled a stunt like that, they might never have seen him again. Even 3,000 miles away, this democracy protected my First Amendment rights. But now, those rights are eroding every single day. And we have to stand up for them. Today, we have the opportunity to do just that. Now, this is a public health podcast, so you might be asking, what does that have to do with COVID-19 exactly? Well, my grandmother, who I told you about, growing up in that dictatorship, she never got to go to school, despite being the smartest person I have ever met. She lost two of the eight kids to whom she gave birth. Any effort to petition the government to guarantee girls' public education or improve government public health services would be met with silence. Or worse, there is no democracy in Egypt. As bad as COVID-19 has been in America, we have the chance to hold our government officials accountable to their failure. And we must. We can identify our public problems and organize and mobilize to elect new leaders to solve them. At the heart of that, though, is democracy itself. The right we have to influence, choose our own government. That is a special thing. And today, we're coming together to do that. I'll never take democracy for granted because I know what it's like not to have it, and neither should you. Today, our guests are folks who know exactly what democracy is worth. The first is Congresswoman Rashida Tlaib, who represents one of the poorest cities in America. She's here to remind us what's at stake on the back end of this election for people who fundamentally need government to work a lot better than it does. And the second is Crooked Media's own Dan Pfeiffer, 
who's going to give us some insight into what we should be watching for tonight and what might come next if, inshallah, we have a transition in leadership. Inshallah. After the break. My guest today is someone who needs no introduction. She is the congresswoman from the 13th District uh, of Michigan, representing much of Detroit and uh, Eastern Wayne County. She is my good friend, Representative Rashida Tlaib. Thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you for having me. Well, I um, wanted to, to touch base because, of course, Rashida, you and I have both uh, served in the city of Detroit, and um, it is one of the communities that COVID-19 has hit hardest. And of course, today uh, is election day, and we're thinking a lot about what the consequences of this election might be. I just want to ask you, you know, what is on your mind today as we think about this potential in terms of uh, a transition in leadership or not, and what your community needs most right now? You know, there is a tremendous amount of fear and anxiety and just so much unknown about COVID. But on top of that, you know, the unknown of who is going to help us get out of this very difficult time. Uh, many of my families, as you know, I mean, I represent the third poorest congressional district in the country. So we're frontline communities that have already been on survivor mode. And to have this pandemic piled on, I think many of us are, you know, looking for leadership and help where, you know, COVID relief package bills are not being held hostage while they push illegitimate Supreme Court justice nominations. Um, people mm-hmm. want to be put first. And right now, uh, what they see is, uh, you know, the handful of folks that are making decisions, maybe McConnell in the Senate or uh, the current president. It's very obvious there isn't a sense of urgency. There isn't a sense of people are dying. We need to do something about it. Uh, We can continue to talk about what some, where it came from and how it got here or, or whatever. But right now, people are dying. They're getting sick. And we have a broken healthcare system, as you know. Mm. And so on top of all of that, I, I wish if anything, this pandemic would create an opportunity to have discussions about these broken systems and actually have an opportunity to fix them. So what's on my mind is, you know, how do I give my residents hope that things are going to be better, uh, that, uh, you know, them exercising their right to vote today uh, opens up that door of the possibility that they'll finally come first, that they'll mm-hmm. finally be taken care of during this pandemic. Mm. And, you know, you spent uh, your long and storied career in public service and in advocacy in uh, Detroit. Um, but this pandemic has shown us a lot about the ways in which uh, structural inequity, racism, broken institutions uh, can affect the people. What do you feel like the pandemic has shown you that you didn't already see coming? Well, I I knew my district was struggling economically. Uh, One of the things that I didn't realize, of course, I knew people had pre-existing conditions, but to layer that with environmental racism, to layer that in the fact that the economic divide, you know, just kind of exposed its ugly face in such a, a tremendous way, such an aggressive way, where I saw my residents really, um, I mean, calling my office saying, Rashida, I, I need diapers. Mm. I don't know what to do. Uh, my water is getting shut off still. Uh, you know, all of this, you know, again, before finally there was an awakening to do moratoriums, there was some push to at least get economic stimulus money. Not everybody got it. And that's another problem. And so uh, for 
a lot of my residents, again, who have been talking about these issues, if anything, it was just exposed uh, even more of why, you know, broken systems actually lead to people dying, lead to more people getting sick. Mm. Um, I, I really appreciate that uh, focus on on how these things um, come together in ways that sometimes you don't see. I mean, this idea of, right, like I, I, can't, I can't even get diapers for my kid in the middle of a pandemic. One of the things that could happen in the, the next couple of weeks is that the Supreme Court could strike down the Affordable Care Act. And I know both you and I support Medicare for all deeply, but we know that nowhere will the impact of losing the ACA be suffered worse than in communities like Detroit. Um, how do you feel like that that would shape uh, facts on the ground for uh, the community that you serve? And what would it mean for folks to potentially lose their Medicaid services, the support for uh, federally qualified health centers and, and, and other forms of subsidized health care in the middle of this you know, worst pandemic in a, over a century? I mean, we already know what's going to happen because we saw what happened before the Affordable Care Act was implemented. And yes, it wasn't perfect. Yes, we were able to cover 25% more uninsured, but what did that really cost us? Because right now, people are paying more out of pocket. Uh, it's more coverage, but uh, it's coverage, but how much of it and how much of it is really coming out of our pocket. And so we know uh, that, you know, the for-profit health care industry has made more money under ACA uh, than ever before. And so we know that that, that system isn't perfect. However, uh, we know that it did save lives. And that's very important to understand, but it's still leaving people out, right? And that's why we're pushing for Medicare for All. That's why we understand the for-profit schemes are still hurting our families that are filing bankruptcy because of medical bills that are deciding not to do preventive care because it costs too much. They're worried about what they have to pay out of pocket. And so, you know, we know that pre-existing conditions, that coverage uh, to be able to be protected and not be discriminated against uh, is critical to saving lives. We saw it again before the ACA. I mean, we saw children who were bumped off of their family's health insurance. We saw exactly what was happening before ACA was implemented. And again, that's why I think there was such a great push of saying this is at least in the right direction. Um, but we all know at the core of it, uh, obviously, is, is again, the, the for-profit schemes, the corporate greed that's kind of implemented and making money off of our healthcare system that needs to be weeded, you know, squeezed out. But um, having people not covered because of pre-existing condition would hurt a community like mine that because of corporate polluters, because of poverty, because of so much, again, uh, of not being able to thrive, they have pre-existing conditions uh, and they would be, again, pushed out. They would be the first. Uh, we're always the first communities uh, to be pushed out of any kind of coverage. And so this would instantly hurt my families. Mm. And um, you've been such a champion on environmental uh, injustice and the responsibility we have to take it on. And you fought hard for um, the Green New Deal. One of the, the the plans that the Biden team has really pushed on was and has been uh, a move to 100% renewable energy. And he's taken some real flack for it, uh, but also coupled with the recognition that we have to change fundamentally the core of our energy economy to do it. Um, can you tell me a little bit about how that would shape the experience for uh, Detroiters? I mean, look, I think the movement in Detroit for environmental uh, justice has been kind of, you know, it existed prior to the movement around the Green New Deal, right? I mean, they've been talking about mm -hmm. Detroit birthing the movement for a green economy, that 
you know, working uh, at these jobs at Marathon Oil Refinery or these steel company isn't resulting in actually economic stability for our community. And plus, at the same time, we're poisoning our air and our water. And so mm-hmm. for many of us, we've been demanding, we've had this vision of what our city, what the 13 district from all throughout the Wayne County communities, what we could be doing to transform and create energy that is not going to lead to the demise of our earth, our environment. And, uh, you know, the discussions have been about, uh, you know, co-ownership, about uh, renewable uh, resources, about uh, like retraining and rethinking. I mean, I look at Highland Park, who literally is one of the cities at the leading, one of the cities leading in the nation of how do we turn a city, a complete city on solar energy. It's amazing. Uh, and, uh, and credit to the movement folks and the residents who've been involved with Solidarity uh, in, in Highland Park, who's brought so much attention to that because at the end, DTE abandoned them. DTE walked away from them. DTE chose profit before the people. And so uh, for much of our movement work is not going to stop with the Biden-Harris administration. Uh, It didn't stop when uh, we had previous uh, Democratic uh, administration from Governor Granholm. When I was there, we were fighting for clean air. (laughs) So it's not going to stop. I think is trying to grow the movement and intersect it with our labor movement. Uh, and, and helping our folks in the labor movement know that the jobs that they have now, some of them, uh, you know, many of them are, are going away, going away because uh, it is not sustainable. Uh, we know that it's going to come to a point where we just can't do it anymore because we are literally killing ourselves and there are other mm. options out there. Uh, and, and it's those folks that, again, are making money, off of polluting our air and our water and our land uh, uh, that are circumventing it. I remember this woman in 1417 um, in my community, it's the most polluted zip code in the state of Michigan, tell me it's like this permission to pollute. And she's like, we're giving them permission to kill us and we need to stop. And so, you know, one of the things I know we can do is at least the 13 district can try to put a human face to what it means to do nothing on the climate crisis. And mm. we've been trying our best to do that because I think it's hard for a lot of our neighbors uh, to actually see what doing nothing would look like on climate crisis. And so we're trying to have that conversation and trying to have folks envision what it would look like and showing them, look at the high rates of cancer in our community. Look at asthma in our community. Look what's happening right now. Uh, look at what COVID did with combined with the environmental racism we have in our district, it resulted in high rates of folks dying of COVID. Mm-hmm. Now, I really appreciate that um, that point because one of the things we don't appreciate is that is that climate change isn't just about saving polar bears. Uh, it is about saving people's lives and all of those climate pollutants that go up into the atmosphere to destroy our planet get sieved through the lungs of our babies in communities like 48217. And I really appreciate uh, you constantly uh, pointing that and, and driving that in the right direction. The, the other question I want to ask is you've done a lot of work to get out the vote in, uh, in the district. And, um, you know, as, uh, inshallah, we get a, uh, a, a Biden administration, what will you be advising that administration to do to be able to lead for, uh, communities like 48217 and like the communities that you serve? Um, no, thank you. Uh, I think, uh, for m- much of, uh, my residents, we know that the Biden-Harris 
administration is not a destination, right? It's a door. It's a door to have a conversation because right now, I truly believe, and I think we are all feeling it, that there's a wall around the White House. We can't have a conversation about mm. systematic racism. We can't have a conversation about, uh, you know, environment, uh, about COVID and the impact on Black and Brown communities. And so we know that the Biden-Harris administration is going to lead with compassion, have a door open to have a conversation, which gives me hope that maybe we have that transformative, meaningful change that needs to happen um, that, that can change people's lives for the better. Uh, so that's how we're seeing yeah. it. I mean, I think m- my residents, the ones I've spoken to on the ground, uh, are wonderfully already persuaded not to vote for Trump. Uh, they understand that we can't afford another four years of Donald Trump. Uh, and they know that a Biden-Harris administration is still going to need uh, movement uh, out there demanding change in the streets. It doesn't mean we stop protesting. It doesn't mean we stop doing the work that we're doing. And so I, I just know they know at least they're not going to be othered. Uh, they, they're not going to be dismissed. I mean, watching the EPA completely, I mean, the first thing he ever did when, uh, when COVID, like the pandemic was rising, the first week, I believe, Donald Trump decided to do a, two executive orders or so that basically said, hey, EPA, don't enforce the Clean Air Act or the Clean Water Act. I mean, what? During a pandemic, you're not going to enforce and make sure we have clean air and clean water. That alone tells you that, again, there is really truly a wall around the White House that is completely disconnected. And those folks within that wall are making decisions that hurt, uh, very painfully hurt so many of us out here. Mm. And, uh, you know, on election night, how are you going to be spending uh, that crazy night? Well, I can tell you, so you should know, uh, you know, I'm not going to stop, uh, get out the vote effort. Uh, and I, I won't until, uh, until it's impossible to get more people out. Uh, if it's eight o'clock, the last right? poll's closed. Uh, well, I, even at eight o'clock, uh, Dr. Al Saeed, if I hear about a long line, I'm coming, I'm going to dance with folks. I'm going to make sure people are, are, are happy and they're not going to get out of line. I, I say this to you because I, uh, you know, I know we lost Michigan by less than 11,000 votes, but what's even more kind of motivating me is looking at the numbers in my district. I mean, 44,000 less people came out in 2016 than 2012 in total over, you know, close to 300. So we got to get that up, you know, and those 40,000 folks are people we are talking to right now that haven't been spoken to by national campaigns or even our own party. I mean, they haven't been uh, seen or heard uh, from in eight years. We have to ask ourselves why, what is going on that we're not doing something that's connecting to these folks that doesn't need to be persuaded to vote for Biden-Harris. They really don't. They, they need to be persuaded that they're needed, that they're being heard and they're seen, right? And, 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 and these are the folks, I mean, folks want to focus on Macomb County. They want to focus on some of these folks. That's fine. But my God, we're still trying to convince people that want to vote for Trump after everything he's done, everything. We're still, I mean, what else is left for him to do for people to understand that he is not for the United States of America. He is for Donald Trump. And so these folks in my district, uh, I, I won't stop calling them. And, and then on top of that, we, we got some great news. I think it's great news that 32,000 new registered voters are in my district. I hope if they're listening to this, 
that they know this is their time to exercise their right to vote. If any uh, first action of voting uh, is to vote against Donald Trump, then take that as a victor. Take that as something you can tell your great-grandchildren that he took out the, mm. the worst president uh, of, our, of, of, of our lifetime. <laughs> uh, and so I just hope the, the, that anyone listening understands that we really did lose our state from one, I think one or two pre, you know, votes per precinct. They can make a difference. I made history, uh, Dr. El Said, and you know this, mm-hmm. with like less than 900 votes. Mm-hmm. So know that you can make a difference. So please make sure they come out. So that night, I'm going to be thinking about all of those folks and making sure that, they, that they're out there. And even after eight o'clock, I'm going to make sure no one gets out of line. Well, we uh, deeply appreciate you and your hope and, and your work uh, in the community. And we're grateful uh, that you took the time to join us today. Thank you so much. No, thank you for having me. Our next guest is Crooked Media's own Dan Pfeiffer. He has a long history in democratic politics, and you can hear him on Pod Save America on Thursdays. But we wanted to bring him in because, well, it's election day, and, um, well, he's the guy who, uh, who always alleviates my anxiety, and God knows I've got a lot of it today. So, uh, Dan, thank you so much for uh, being here, if not for everyone, at least just for me. <laughs> well, if, if it, all I can do is make you feel a little bit better today, then success. Dan, your motto is uh, worry about everything, panic about nothing. So how are you holding up on Election Day and how should other people take uh, that and think about it today, potentially tomorrow, potentially for the next you know week until we know exactly what the, the answer to this election is? Well, so my, you're right. My motto is worry about everything. Uh, doesn't mean you have to worry about everything equally, though, right? So it's an Election Day is the day where it's so hard to separate the signal from the noise, right? We're, as we sit here, we're going to have a gazillion tweets from reporters saying long lines in this Trump precinct or short (laughs) lines in Cleveland or short lines in Philly. And it doesn't mean anything. We don't, it's just an anecdote, right? And like, like I'll give you an example from 2012 when anecdotal data can send you panicking. I was with president Obama in 2012 and my job was to, uh, be in communication with the on election day was being communicated. I was sitting in this thing called the boiler room with all the campaign leadership. And my job was to be the bridge between the field staff who were getting data from the precincts and the president and to be able to tell him like, things are looking bad, you know, turnout is low here. We have to uh, do a satellite radio interview or call into radio somewhere or something to juice turnout. And everything looked good everywhere except for Cleveland. And Ohio was the tipping point state. And we were in, uh, like, starting to get, like, very, very concerned. And we're like, there's, like, the data's not coming in. There's low turnout. I send a message to the president's body guy to say, get ready to do Cleveland interviews. He calls me, in between me sending that message and him calling me, we discover that it's not that there's low turnout, it's that turnout is so high that it's taking them too long to process the numbers and get them out. But of course, the president, being somewhat concerned about his own reelection, immediately called me like, what's wrong in Cleveland? What's happening? And fortunately, I got my information in time to tell them that it was okay. But it's like, we're only, everything you're going to hear on election day may mean something, it may not, but we will not know until the votes come in. And this is even more true on this election when the over when large portions of people, particularly our voters, have voted in advance. So those mostly meaningless election day anecdotes are even more meaningless this time around. Mm. 
You know, the irony of a lot of people voting in advance is that they get counted last. <laughs> and so yeah. they're the first to come in and the last to last to result. Yeah. And so, yeah. uh, you know, depending on the state, right? That's right. That's right. On election night, what will you be watching for? And what, you know, tips should we be thinking through as we hear the the different states report out their outcomes? You know, I'm thinking you hear from North Carolina, Pennsylvania, potentially Michigan, although Wayne County is always slow, you know, we're, we're sort of in for a good night. But, I, you know, obviously I haven't watched as many of these as closely as you. Where should listeners be watching uh, tonight? I think I would watch Florida. Now, Joe Biden doesn't need to win Florida. Um, but how he does there will tell us a lot about how things are looking in the rest of the country. Florida is one of the small handful of battleground states that counts their mail ballots when they come in. Mm. So when the poll col- polls close in Florida, in both the because Florida has two time zones, so the panhandles in the central time zone, the rest of the states in mm-hmm. the eastern time zone, when they close, they are going to dump in the overwhelming majority of mail ballots that have come in, mm. and that will give us a sense whether. The electorate is looking like we thought it was. So, so on election night 2016, everyone thought Hillary Clinton was going to win. We thought turnout among uh, the Latino community was going to be up. And when those votes came in, it was pretty clear that Trump was overperforming with a segment of voters who were not be, who were not seen in the polls in 2016. He was, you know, winning in these rural counties that Obama won, or you know, double tripling. Um, Mitt Romney's margin in those counties. And so Florida will at least give us a sense of whether the model works uh, and whether are the assumptions that everyone has made, the Biden campaign, mm-hmm. us, the most of the pollsters actually work. So you will see uh, Arizona could play a similar role. That'll just come in a little bit later because of the Western time zone. But it's seen on the Sunday states like Pennsylvania, for instance, cannot start counting the, in Wisconsin, cannot start counting the ballots in t- mail ballots until election day. Mm. So we're going to, the first set of results will probably be incredibly heavily Trump in those states. And we shouldn't worry about that yet, right? We, mm. we got to have the vast majority. We're winning in some cases uh, early mail ballots in those states, seventy thirty. And okay. so, people who know the data will be able to tell us what it means. But when you're just watching on TV, do not worry if when Wisconsin and Pennsylvania come in very heavy Trump early, because the vast majority of our votes probably will not be counted until late that night if, or the coming days afterwards. Mm. So really, really, we're looking at that first indication out of Florida to ask whether or not the uh, demographic of the votes is consistent with what we had sort of predicted coming in. That's really helpful. Yeah. So I would say it's Florida, Arizona, and Georgia all count the ballots early-ish. And so we'll get a sense, a bigger, a fuller picture of the electorate from those three battleground states early. Mm, if I'm not mistaken, North Carolina counts counts them early too, no? They do. They okay. do. North Carolina does. They had their, they also allow several days afterwards for mm. for ballots that are postmarked by election day, but come in, I think it, it's been changing with the court cases, but it's several days afterwards. So we will not know for sure those, but North Carolina is also on that list, right? Mm. These states don't rise and fall individually. They kind of rise and fall as a collective. And mm. so we'll, it just, any one of those states, Florida is the most expert at counting mail ballots in advance because they've always had a robust mail program. Um, so it's the one that I'll keep an eye on, um, even though it's torture for <laughs> anyone who's been around politics. You know, I spent 37 days in Florida during the recount in 2000, so mm. I have particularly uh, tough memories of that state. But that's that's kind of a place to look because I think we'll get that's where we'll get our earliest earliest picture. Fantastic, that's really helpful. And there's a, a number of Senate races that are 
uh, up. And, you know, I, I know we're all focused on beating Trump, but, you know, the Senate is going to be critical to being able to pass the handful of legislative priorities that uh, any president comes in with. And I think will be really, really critical in terms of um, what we can do on COVID. Um, can you tell us the, the Senate races that you're thinking about and you're paying attention to and how you feel about them? Yeah. So um, the way to think about it is if Democrat, Democrats need three seats, if we hold everything and if we lose uh, and there are only two Democratic incumbents who have tough ish races, you know, there is Gary Peters in your state of Michigan, in my state. Yep. He, he has been winning, but it's been a little bit closer than people feel comfortable with the in some of the polling, the numbers of he's been winning, but at a number below 50. Um, I believe that if Biden wins Michigan, like we think he's going to win, that Gary Peters will be fine. But I agree. Yeah. that's one race watching that the other one is Doug Jones, who's running in Alabama. Obviously, a much tougher race. Um, we've been in at Potsdam America, been in close contact with the Jones campaign, and they're actually doing much better than I think a lot of national Democrats think. And that ra- that race is not um, out of reach. Um, but pers- but let's say we lose one of those two races, and we got to pick up four. So your fastest path to four is co- defeating Cory Gardner in Colorado, and everyone seems to agree that that is what is going to happen because uh, even the, like most Republican superbacks have pulled out. Um, of Colorado. Wow. It's a state that's getting uh, much bluer with their best time. And it's a state that has been a mail, uh, a vote by mail state for six years now. So it's gonna, the less of the, could there be some sort of glitch in the system that could hurt turnout? That is unlikely to happen there. Martha McSally in Arizona is probably the second most vulnerable. She is always polled terribly. She's been behind Mark Kelly in just about every poll, she underperforms Trump. Kelly outperforms Biden in polling. So that's one, probably the second most likely. Then you have Susan Collins in Maine. You know, she has been that she has been trailing in most of the polls. It's a little bit closer. She has, you know, she's been around for a very long time. Uh, has more, even despite her behavior on Kavanaugh and supporting Trump and a whole bunch of other things, she's got a little more of a, a reputation de- independent of Trump, which uh, Gardner and McSally certainly don't. The next one to really watch in the most likely one that puts us over the top is Cal Cunningham in North Carolina. He has been leading in the polls for much of this race. Tom Tillis uh, is sort of just all he's known as is a Trump flunky um, in North Carolina. There's been some complications mm. in that race because of some personal conduct issues of Cal Cunningham's. We haven't seen that manifest itself mm. in the polls yet, but that's just something to watch. And then you got a whole bunch of other ones that are all within reach. Uh, Teresa Greenfield in Iowa, uh, Kansas race, Alaska race, MJ Hager in Texas. We have two races in Georgia. There's a poll out today that has John Ossoff winning in one of them. And the second Georgia race is it's the primary essentially. And if if Raphael Warnock gets to 50, then he wins. Otherwise, there'll be a runoff in January, I think. And one thing that I think is worth noting is that historically, the Senate races tip in the direction of the winner of the presidential, even in redder states. In 2012, mm-hmm. Indiana, Missouri, North Dakota, all were like within the margin of error going into election. And then when Obama won, they tipped in that direction. A similar dynamic happened in 08. In 2016, that happened in Pennsylvania and Wisconsin, the Republican favor. So there's a chance that if we have a good night, some of these ones that seem like more of a stretch that are, but are close right now could end up falling in our direction, which would be great because having the more, obviously the more Democrats we have, the easier, not just taking the majority, but majority plus some will make it easier to pass the initiatives that you and I think are so important that it can get hard with a couple of conservative Democrats getting in the way. 
Yeah. Yeah. That's, that's, uh, that is really, really important. And, um, I think sometimes we, we forget that the, the, the whole thing is a system, a machine that has to work together. And, um, you know, as bad as, as Donald Trump has been and as important as it is to, uh, removing him, if we elect a president without the capacity to pass legislation, then, uh, you know, a lot of the goals that we have are dead in the water. Now, you know, you did say that we don't worry about everything equally. What are the things you are really worried about? I, the th- yeah, let me tell you what I'm not extra worried about. To get, anyways, I, if Do- Joe Biden somehow does not win this election, I do not believe it will be because of something that Donald Trump said or did in these la- in the last period, you know, in the debate or in the weeks, in the days after the debate. I, it will be because our electoral system, which is underfunded, poorly planned, uh, it's like creaking under the best of circumstances, uh, is going to be massively strained with what we believe to be record turnout. There are counties in Texas that have, that a week out from the election already had more votes from the early vote alone than in all of 2016. So it's going to be, everything says it'd be huge turnout. A lot of that turnout is going to happen in ways in which it's never happened before. Pennsylvania has never had a mail balloting system. It's going to be overwhelmingly mail balloting. And you take that, bro. You take that system that didn't work great in sixteen, didn't work great in twelve, didn't work great in eight, and you test it with huge turnout, a pandemic, and uh, a, you know years of Republican voter mm-hmm. suppression. Is that we end up in an election that does not accurately reflect uh, not just the majority of the country, which we know supports Biden, but the majority of the people in the states that add up to two seventy. So I think it. What worries me is a system failure. Um, mm-hmm. that, you know, a bunch of ballots get tossed out because of these arcane rules, you know, cause our system makes it, our system errs on the side of not counting votes, which is the absolute opposite of the way it should work. Right. We're so worried about mm-hmm. this fraud that doesn't exist that if you like in Pennsylvania, if you don't, ter- you know, put the right thing in the right envelope, they won't count your vote, which is insane. The presumption should be on vote counting. It should be the burden of proof mm. to not count the vote should be on someone proving it's a fraudulent vote. Instead, it's the opposite. And that is, that is a problem we are going to have to dedicate ourselves to as a Democratic Party and a country to fixing and make it a top priority as soon as this election is over. But that, that's what worries me. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, so it's the system uh, failing in the ways the system is built to fail, um, uh, which is which is that's which right. that's exactly probably right. the worst, uh, the worst possible thing to have to worry about because it's designed into it. Um Switching tack now to the pandemic, I mean, it is impossible to understand this election outside of this pandemic. It has been the frame for almost every policy conversation we are having, whether it's uh, directly taking on the pandemic or it's uh, addressing the economic consequences of the pandemic or it's thinking long term about how to to address the the clear failures in our system that allowed the pandemic to to blow up the way that it did. In, in your mind, you know, how should we be seeing the pandemic in the public debate, both going into Election Day today and then also um, coming out of Election Day in terms of, you know, what a, a Biden administration uh, will need to do uh, starting, you know, day one in the transition. So in the context of the election, the pandemic is obviously the single number one issue. It is driving every bit of news coverage, every conversation. It has probably defined the electoral coalition that if Biden wins, we'll be put him over the top. The fact that Biden is overperforming with seniors uh, is in large part mm-hmm. to the pandemic. Donald Trump has just absolutely fumbled the ball in every way, shape or form. 
with the pandemic, the people who have reacted the strongest to that are the people most vulnerable to the pandemic, the people who, you know, older people, the people who are in the vulnerable populations. Now, the thing that's interesting about it, though, is Biden is up by, you know, maybe nine points in the average of the polls right now. He was up by seven points in some of the averages of the polls before the pandemic. So it hasn't changed that much. It is just sort of heighten the focus on the strengths and weaknesses of the two candidates. And I do think it has probably made it easier for some reluctant Democrats, people, some, some Democrats or progressives who are skeptical of Biden and some, you know, the people who voted for Gary Johnson or didn't vote last time who were just skeptical politicians generally to get excited about Biden, because I think that his personal decency, his experience like that, like those, they seem like they are in, they come out clearer in this environment in a way mm-hmm. that has strengthened his candidacy. And, and I think Donald Trump is an unserious man who suffers when the times are serious. Like 2016, obviously lots of incredibly important things happened in the world, but in American politics, we sort of thought economy is pretty good, not as good as we'd like it to be, but it's been steady for a long time. The world seems okay. Maybe we can take a gamble on someone like this. And that feels very, the stakes of that gamble seem much more dire right now than they mm. did four years ago. But Donald Trump, I think, has suffered from that. Now, the pandemic is going to define Biden's presidency. You know, if he wins, knock on wood, throw a salt over your shoulder, whatever it is. But he will, they will define his presidency in the way- Inshallah, as we say. That's right. <laughs> in the way that the financial crisis defined Biden, Obama's, right? It he is going like if he had planned if a year ago he had a vision of what his first hundred days would look like and how he would spend his quote unquote political capital that is very different now right you know how you think about that what your economic plan looks like how you know your order of things how you staff your White House and your government is all very different because you are coming in at a time like I often joke that the, what things presuming the the economy stays on the trajectory it's on the pandemic stays on the trajectory it's on that. In t- Joe Biden will walk into that house in 2021, January, Joe Biden walking house in January of 2021 and be nostalgic for what it was like in 2009, right? When the economy was mm-hmm. collapsing around him, because this is much worse, much harder. Um, and so this will, in how he and his administration handle this in the first nine months will probably define the 2022 midterms, the 2024 and his legacy. So the, the stakes are incredibly high. And how... How, I mean, as soon as he's elected, knock on wood, inshallah, you know, we'll uh, we'll, we'll, we'll pray on it. Um, as soon as he is elected, he has to go out building a team, right? Filling thousands of posts. What does that process look like? You know, take take folks into that process of trying to actually source and build a White House plus all of these agencies uh, and trying to get folks to, you know, leave likely more lucrative jobs to come and work in government where everything that they're doing is uh, under a microscope, you know, for the ultimate privilege of being able to serve their country. How does that process work and um, and how are people thinking about it? So for the last many months, there's been a group of former government officials, many of whom I worked with, some of the best people in all of the fields, uh, national security, healthcare, justice, economy, et cetera, who have been putting together giant lists of people for every job in the government from secretary of X, Y, and Z to undersecretary to deputy secretary and preparing for, so that when, if and when Joe Biden wins, he is going to get a list of people. And he's he if he is approaching this process in a way similar to the Barack Obama is, he's been having 
he's been blocking some time out his schedule as hard as that is to have some conversations around the big jobs and to think about it so that you can move quickly. These people are being vetted um, for, you know, they're being, they're ref- I wouldn't say the references are being checked, but, you know, they're, Calls are being made to see if this is as good a person is as good as you think they are. And he's going to have to start making some decisions on personnel right away. Now, with Obama in 2009, there was a very, like, people were coming out of the woodwork to go into government to work with him. Uh, there was a sort of a feeling of excitement about it. It had been eight years since the Democrats had been in power. And so people were very fired up about it. I think you're going to see a lot of that um, for Biden as well, because it, it is an all hands on deck moment. I think people will believe mm-hmm. like that my country, like for especially people in the end who 2009 was like the economy is collapsing. We're, you know, we're, we're trying to get out of Iraq. We're trying to deal with Afghanistan. Like my country, we're, this is a moment of crisis. They need me. I can step away from my professorship or my family or whatever that for some period of time. And I think the urgency of the moment will um, help. Uh, do that for Biden. And one, there's been one legal change that's very helpful is maybe six years ago, uh, they they passed a law. It used to be that almost everyone who had a senior level position at an agency had to be confirmed by the Senate. And that was a huge dissuader from people doing it because it's like you're handing over your tax records to Mitch McConnell. That never seems like a good idea. You have like you people, you become a a hostage for totally unrelated things where they'll hold up your nomination to try to get like, I don't know, like a gift for a donor in Tom Cotton's district, you know, some stupid stuff like that. They changed the law so that now the vast majority of people do not need that. So it'll be much easier to get people at the, not the mid-level of government, but like two levels above that. And I think that will help them staff up quickly because then, you know, basically they just hire someone. They pass their background check and they can walk into the office the next day as opposed to being stuck in limbo for months while the Senate votes on you. So I do think Biden will have a more full government earlier than Obama did, which will be a huge help. Mm. I mean, I'm thinking about uh, just the operational lift for COVID, right? And um, thinking about what the new administration is going to have to step into. Not only will they have to figure out uh, how to rehabilitate agencies that have lost their trust, like the CDC and the FDA, um, but they're going to have to figure out how to, A, deal with um, the lack of trust in a, in a forthcoming vaccine and also the logistics of getting it everywhere. And in a process that um, makes sense from a public health perspective uh, and an economic perspective, right? But then also um, deal with things like setting standards around uh, masks and standards around lockdown policies and closing schools and uh, how and when to do that. And I worry that, you know, as we are walking into what I believe is likely going to be the worst surge that we have seen yet, uh, levels of COVID-19 transmission and probably uh, hospital uh, overflow and, and potentially even deaths worse than we've seen even at the beginning, um, that the urgency of doing that plus the challenge of doing that with the logistical orders of the pandemic uh, just make it <laughs> this obscenely hard thing to do because you want to be ready to govern on January 21st, the minute he puts his hand on the Bible, like you said. And so a lot of that has to be done before that. Um, and I, you know, I can't imagine what that, what that work is going to look like for them. I mean, for Biden, actually, like, it's not exactly the same in the, but Biden has relevant experiences because that's what happened in 2009. Barack Obama won the election on the first day, first Tuesday of November, but for all intents and purposes, he became president of the United States the next day. George Bush had mm-hmm. with 20% approval rating. He had basically been mailing it in for months, uh, had sort of given up on trying to manage financial crisis. We were uh, drawing up economic plans, 
Obama was meeting with leaders in the industry to try to calm the markets, to try to put meeting, you know, putting together like an actual legislative. Event. Joe Biden is the day, it probably won't be the day after the election, but whatever day Joe Biden is declared president of the United States, he he like president elect and president, the only difference is going to be he's not going to go to work in the White House. Um, he's going to have to be governing. He's going to mm-hmm. have to be setting like on things like masks and building trust in vaccine. That work's going to start the second he is the winner. It's not going to wait until January 21. And he, and I probably like the second someone get this was true for anyone who was on the economic team for Obama. The second you get that job, you know, you're not starting in January. You're starting the day, the minute you hang up that phone and you are on conference calls, drawing up legislative proposals, you know, you're the thing that will be interesting would be for all of George Bush's flaws and they are manifest. He, they did a very good job of the transition. They opened the door to every agency. We got to walk in, learn the information that you needed to know to be able to govern on day one. I don't imagine that that's going to be the case here. And so that's going to make it even harder because I think there's going to be a little bit of, or probably a lot of, um, you know, people are going to be walking out with hard drives, uh, shredding some paper. There's a lot of corruption, incompetence, and crime to be covered up uh, that I think is going to be happening that's going to make the job harder for uh, Team Biden. Like, they, they have a monumental task ahead of them. That that in the fact that, you know, there is so much that they have not tended to, right? That um, just the inner working of government, you know, I, I'm just imagining uh, at the CDC, right? The, just the Just the morale itself. Uh, at the agency, and I, you know, I've got a lot of good friends who who work there and and have cycled through there, and they say it's never been worse. And I can't imagine, right? Like, what does it mean to have to walk into a CDC that is already broken, and then fix it because it is mission critical to getting the job done, right? So, you know, it is going to be a monumental task. I, um, Dan, I really appreciate you spending this time with us and helping us to understand what's what's coming next. Um, I'm not even going to ask the question about the never event where Donald Trump wins, um, but I will ask, what are you spending your day doing today uh, on election day to tide over any any potential panic that may be eking out? This is a whole like do as I say, not as I do situation, which is I would tell other people <laughs> like there, like the number of vol- there are still volunteer opportunities you can do on election day. There are people doing calls, there are texting voters, and you can do that up until the minute the polls close and the West Coast. We're going to do some of that in my house. That's a big part of it. Other people will say, like, go for a run, like try to relax. I I would say that, but I will not. I'm not going to do that. I'm going to read every tweet. I'm going to text every like (laughs) I'm going to text every person I know who has some access to some little bit of data about something because they're working on a Senate race in this state or they know someone who's like in this boiler room and I'm going to I'm going to suffer. That's going to be my plan for the day. Well, you know, um, suffering righteously, though. Yes, that's right. Uh, and uh, we appreciate you for it, Dan. Um, well, thank you so much for, for making the time with us. Uh, really, really appreciate it and, and your insights on um, how to think about Election Day and uh, what, what might come next for um, a president-elect Joe Biden, God willing, inshallah. And um, uh, until then, uh, we'll look forward to uh, listening to you on, uh, on, on your pod on Thursday. All right. Thanks so much, man. As usual, here's what I'm watching right now. Here's a clip from this week. The troubled Trump child, Don Jr., talking about deaths to COVID-19. Well, why aren't they talking about deaths? Oh, oh, because the number is almost nothing. Because we've gotten control of this thing. We understand how to, how it works. The exact same day he said that, nearly a thousand Americans died. That's not almost nothing. But beyond being senseless and insensitive to more than a thousand people who lost loved ones, the broader point he's making is just wrong. 
the whole goal of this line of argument is to justify inaction. That's what Don Jr. and just about every single person who responds to this surge with some argument about low death rates are really getting at. But this is not magic. It's science. When a deadly disease spreads, it follows that more people will die of it. And now deaths are starting to increase right alongside cases. But in making this absurd argument, these people have delayed action. And now it's costing people their lives. Lives we could have saved. And later this week, Dr. Fauci said this. We will start to approach what we call normal. I don't think, Francis, that it's going to be at a level where people are going to feel like there are no public health measures to be implemented until we get to the end of 2021. Perhaps the most important thing that will change that number is what happens tonight. This is, for so many reasons, the most important election in our lifetimes. But if we have a chance at taking this pandemic down, it's going to take competent leadership. And today, we have a chance to elect it in Joe Biden and Kamala Harris. This should go without saying, if you have yet to go vote, go do it. Please, democracy and potentially hundreds of thousands of lives and millions of livelihoods are on the line. Oh, and in case you needed an exclamation point on why you should vote, here's Donald Trump at a rally on Sunday. Don't tell anybody, but let me wait till a little bit after the election. Facing down a pandemic, I'd take Fauci over Trump any day. I'll see you on the other side. America Dissected is a product of Crooked Media. Our producer is Austin Fisher. Charlotte Landis mixes and masters the show. Production support from Tara Terpstra, Lyra Smith, and Allison Falzetta. The theme song is by Takaya Suzawa and Alex Sugiera. Our executive producers are Sarah Geismer and me, Dr. Abdul El-Sayed, your host. Thanks for listening. Thanks for listening.